0: Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in, either you are considering a career in aging or want to learn more about aging fields or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the Radio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Joseph Goggler. Dr. Goggler is highly accomplished and holds several titles in the School of Public Health. To name a few, he is a professor and Robert L. Kane Endowed Chair in Long-Term Care and Aging. He is the Director of the Center for Healthy Aging and Innovation. He is the Director of the Public Health Center of Excellence on Dementia Caregiving. Dr. Goggler's interests include dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and long-term care. Hi, Dr. Gogler. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm very excited for our conversation.
2: Uh, great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Let's start by having you tell our audience about yourself and how you developed your interests uh, in aging and in dementia care.
2: Sure. Well, I am a professor here in the School of Public Health, as you mentioned. I have really spent my entire career focused in aging and particularly focused in dementia care and dementia care innovation. My interest in the field was sparked less from Formal coursework and more based in some of my extracurricular experiences I had while I was an undergraduate at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. Um, during my sophomore year, I uh, was involved in some volunteer activity. And one of the first activities we did was visit the local senior apartment complex and play card with, with the people who live there. And I like that a lot. And I enjoyed that. And I kind of broadened my volunteering to go beyond the senior apartment complex to actually visit the local nursing home as well. I was a psychology and history major there and uh, my junior year, I think after my third year, or was it before my third year? It's been a while now. Before my third year, uh, we actually had the opportunity to do a internship through the psychology major. And my internship actually was with Catholic Charities in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I, was, uh, I, I worked with their geriatric social work team and many of the social workers conducted home visits. And the very first home visit I did was for a woman uh, who was caring for her husband who had uh, dementia. So I saw firsthand what those experiences were like for her. Um, some of the challenges that she went through, as well as her husband. And that really galvanized my academic interests in aging and specifically trying to identify pathways to make aging a career. Um, So prior to my senior year, I actually did an undergraduate research opportunities program here at the University of Minnesota. And I worked with faculty here. It was through the psychology department. And in working with some of those faculty, I obtained a better understanding of what were some of the, the graduate programs in lifespan developmental psychology that could be a potentially good fit for me that then led me to apply and get accepted to uh, the Human Development and Family Studies program at Penn State. And it really just kind of built from there. Um, My advisor at Penn State is a pioneer in gerontology and aging and mental health research. His name is Steve Zaret, um, and I worked with him. And then when I finished my PhD at Penn State, I did what's called a postdoctoral fellowship which actually was here again at the University of Minnesota with uh, Bob Kane, uh, Robert Kane, who's endowed Chair I Now Hold um, and is named after him. So kind of a circular narrative, but at the same time, a very fulfilling one. And again, it's one that uh, I've, I've spent the, really all of my professional career focused on.
1: That's wonderful. Could you talk a little bit more about what in particular energizes you and keeps you going in this field of work?
2: I think what really energizes me is when I get to engage with the people who are touched by our work, either directly or indirectly particularly the families who are caring for uh, relatives, uh, loved ones, or others who are living with dementia, hearing from them what their experiences are. And I think what energizes me is when I hear from them, particularly those who have been involved in our programs. Um, A lot of our work focuses on developing programs, services, and evaluating and disseminating them for caregiving families as well as people living with dementia. And when we hear from these families how much their involvement in our research has benefited them personally, and then them sharing that with others that means more to me than probably anything else um, in my career, regardless of the titles and the awards and any of those other things, um, the professional stature to me it's it's really hearing from the people themselves because that also then validates us in that it tells us that, you know, what we're doing is on the right track. It actually is making a difference. And if we can continue to broaden our efforts in not only testing and designing uh, programs scientifically, but then also thinking about and starting to engage in how we can best disseminate and implement that work in everyday context, whether it's clinical settings, community programs for families themselves, that tells us that we're in the right space and the work we're doing matters. And so that's really what energizes me. And I would also say, energizes our team too.
1: I think it would be helpful to establish some definitions um, before the rest of our conversation. I think it's common for people to conflate the terms Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, Could you talk about the differences between those terms?
2: Yeah, so dementia is not a disease. It's really a set of symptoms. There are multiple criteria for someone to have dementia, but generally it's someone who has cognitive impairments and also their activities of daily living are being impaired. And uh, again, these criteria have been updated over the last several decades in terms of who, when someone is said to have dementia or not. In the past, it was thought that memory problems had to be a precursor for dementia, but with the update clinical guidelines in 2011, that's no longer the case. So dementia is the set of symptoms, clinical symptoms, that are caused by multiple types of diseases, Alzheimer's disease being the most prominent one. Alzheimer's disease is really a neural, you know, again, a neuropathological chronic disorder um, that's characterized by two uh, hallmarks, uh, classic hallmarks, neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques. Again, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause or type of dementia, but it's not the only cause or type of dementia. There are other forms of dementia that can also cause some of the symptomatology of someone living with dementia. For example, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, in some cases, even reversible forms of dementia, although those are fairly rare. So that's really the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Again, Alzheimer's disease being a cause of dementia. So that's probably the best way to differentiate those two terms.
1: I think it would also be helpful for our audience to hear some statistics or numbers if you have those to provide. How prevalent really is Alzheimer's disease and dementia in our country?
2: Well, uh, it is growing and it has been growing. So right now, more than 6 million uh, Americans live with Alzheimer's disease. That equates roughly to 1 in 10 people over the age of 65 having Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. That number or that percentage actually jumps up to around 3 in 10 for people over the age of uh, 85. We can anticipate that this number likely will double to probably around 13 million people over the next uh, 30 years or so. So again, the the number of people living with Alzheimer's disease or related dementia is extensive and it's growing. Um, and uh, when we look at causes of death amongst the adult population, Alzheimer's disease has been slowly moving up. The uh, causes of death. I mean, the, tr- the, the classic traditional causes of death tend to be cancer, heart problems, cardiovascular disorders, et cetera. But Alzheimer's disease, I believe last I read was the sixth leading cause of death, but it's threatening to move up that list. So when you think of Alzheimer's as a public health issue, a public health concern, um, the increase, of course, and it parallels the aging of our population means that it, it is a public health issue that we will have to address, if not now, in the near future.
1: I know one of the things that you're passionate about is long-term care and um, treatment for these patients. Uh, I know this is a broad and probably challenging question, but in your mind, how appropriate is the care that these patients are receiving? What? Proportion- yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: that that's a really good question, and I don't think there's a good answer to it. You know, one thing, one thing that's interesting. Uh, you know, you use the term patients. And, you know, that would be, nor- you know, I think that's that's acceptable when you're talking about people receiving formal health care. But, you know, when you really consider the landscape of services and care that people living with dementia receive, it really isn't in a health care system. You hear me use the term people living with dementia, and I use that deliberately. That terminology has been really Set forth by advocates, including people living with dementia themselves, really emphasizing that, you know, even though someone may have a dementia diagnosis, they still, in many instances, have choices, preferences, et cetera. They're not simply recipients of care. So when you use the term patients, you know, you, use it and think about it more broadly in terms of, again, the care that people living with dementia receive. Because in reality, the majority of care that people living with dementia receive is not provided by formal health care providers. It's provided by, more often than not, families or other unpaid caregivers. Over 80%, I believe 83% of all the care that people living with dementia receive is often solely provided by unpaid caregivers, most often family members now when thinking about is that care appropriate or not that is a, a much more challenging question to answer i think we know that many healthcare systems in terms of how they're organized do not provide optimal care for people living with dementia certainly not optimal care for people living older people living with chronic conditions much, much of the time, the care is not integrated. Information isn't communicated effectively across different practitioners and providers. And when you think of the complexities that someone living with dementia often may have, the comorbid conditions, um, the other types of issues, it really requires a very integrated comprehensive multidisciplinary care approach. And unfortunately, many healthcare systems don't necessarily organize their care in that manner. So people living with dementia are not necessarily seen as individuals with dementia, but individuals with a heart condition that just happen to have dementia. Dementia isn't seen as the organizing, you know, issue that may complicate all these other types of health conditions. And until that happens, I don't think the care that's provided currently will indeed be necessarily optimal. Now, there certainly are healthcare systems that have bucked that trend and have made dementia uh, more of a priority in terms of the care they deliver. But by and large, I guess when I look at the healthcare landscape overall, one can't say that dementia care is optimally delivered in many instances.
1: Yeah, you've made some excellent points, especially when it comes to the terminology of using the word patient versus person with dementia. And to cite a recent example that I personally saw, um, I did see a New York Times article about the overuse of antipsychotics in dementia patients or in people experiencing dementia in long-term care settings. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how challenging is it to administer appropriate medication uh, to those individuals?
2: I, I think, you know, again, many, many, uh, professional advocacy organizations, the Alzheimer's Association, the American Medical Directors Association, American Geriatric Society, they're all fairly consistent in emphasizing that antipsychotics should only be used in rare instances when the, say in this case, the nursing home, the the person living in a nursing home is a threat to themselves or others, or uh, their mood is so inconsolable that only an antipsychotic is used as a last resort. Antipsychotics are never to be used as frontline treatment um, in nursing homes. Yet, as the New York Times article indicates, many nursing homes, for whatever reason, still tend to rely too heavily on antipsychotics in part. And I would argue it's an issue of dissemination first and foremost, for whatever reasons, these guidelines, which are very clear, are not making it to the floor. They're not making it to the day-to-day care provision. And so, finding ways to more effectively disseminate these guidelines so the care delivered is more appropriate to me is the first challenge the second challenge and may, perhaps and maybe this is uh, overly cynical of me or too nefarious of me but nonetheless i think it bears bears discussion is it may very well be f- for a, a variety and myriad of reasons nursing homes aren't training their staff in what is appropriate care for people living with dementia and i'm using people living with dementia deliberately here because the majority of people who live in nursing homes often are living with cognitive impairment, if not dementia itself. And when you talk about behaviors and some of the behavioral issues that might occur for these people living with dementia, it may very well be antipsychotics are used because they're easy to deliver. At at first glance, it may seem that we're sedating the residents and so there's no more behavior problems. But again, the side effects of using antipsychotics for people living with dementia are severe. um, They're very concerning. And in a nutshell, what this tells me is that many direct care staff aren't being trained in the many, many non-pharmacological approaches which have been proven to work, have been proven to be effective, that can address and effectively manage these behavioral issues in ways that are much more uh, healthy um, and much more conducive to quality of life for uh, people living in these types of settings.
1: When family members or caregivers of people living with dementia are looking to have that family member live in a long-term facility, whether it be specifically for dementia or other concurrent conditions, what questions should they be asking when they take a look at these facilities to determine whether or not their family member should be placed there?
2: Right. There's a lot of questions that families should be asking. If people can use Google, I mean, one thing I would recommend is simply Google CMS nursing home checklist. And I think the first thing that will come up is a nine-page checklist that families can use to help guide their decision-making related to, is this the right place for my uh, loved one to live in? Again, it's nine pages, so I can't go through and won't go through all the different questions, but some examples are, you know, one section is basic information. Um, Does the nursing home offer specialized services like a special care unit for a resident with dementia or ventilator care? That's one example. There's a safety and care section. So does the nursing home have an arrangement with a nearby hospital? Are care plan meetings held with residents and family members at times that are convenient and flexible wherever possible? I mean, that's another example. Preventing abuse is another section. Um, Does the nursing home have policies and procedures on prohibiting and reporting abuse and neglect? Nursing home appearance. Does the nursing home appear clean and well-kept? I mean, that's kind of an obvious one, but nonetheless, It can be overwhelming when making the decision, and I think many families don't necessarily have at their ease or disposal all of the questions they should be asking that they can then review at a later time to make a really informed decision. A lot of times the nursing home admission process is based on, say, a hospital discharge stay, where a discharge planner may say, you know, Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your partner needs to go in a nursing home. There's a bed available here. You know, I'm going to arrange it and we're going to make this move happen. I think families should, wherever possible, and if they can, put on the brakes so that they can actually do some research in the nursing home so that they feel comfortable themselves that it's the right uh, setting. One other tool I think family members can avail themselves of if they live in Minnesota. Again, you can Google this to find it. Or search it on your web browser. It's called the Minnesota Nursing Home Report Card. This is based on a very detailed set of surveys that uh, the Minnesota Department of Health and Human Services administers to all licensed nursing homes in the state of Minnesota that collects a lot of great information on quality of life ratings on the part of residents in these settings, other key information that can, again, help provide a more informed decision when and if uh, this circumstance comes up. So,
1: Yeah, and I think depending on the facility or the nursing home, they could be financially prohibitive for many individuals. Could you talk about the costs associated with long-term care? How do families tend to fund the care?
2: Yeah, I mean, that ranges widely. As we all know, the costs are, are significant, uh, residential long-term care. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen various numbers. I, I, I don't think it's unusual to find a private-pay nursing home charging five figures a month. For a a loved one's stay. So, I think many family members, they probably rely on a patchwork of things to pay for residential long term care. Unfortunately, that might be the assets of the parent or relative themselves. And those assets may be spent down to the point where, you know, again, private pay or pay out of pocket is no longer possible. And then this is called the spend down, which I think probably a lot of people are familiar with, where then one becomes eligible for uh, what's called Medicaid, which then covers long-term nursing home stays. Some of the problems with that are you know, some nursing homes, they may have different standards for Medicaid only paid beds versus the private pay beds. And so that is one particular challenge that comes up for many families who are in this situation unfortunately i don't think many of us really think through about the cost of long term care until it's too late and so we end up relying on say 401k accounts personal savings assets versus preparing sooner, say, purchasing a long-term care insurance policy. Now, I want to be clear, a long-term care insurance policy is by no means uh, the savior or panacea in this situation. For many people who have a long-term care insurance policy, because of the inherent, you know, I I would say lack of stability in the long-term care insurance market, many people's premiums have gone up substantially, in some cases, to exorbitant levels. But that being said, I think all of us should be preparing for uh long-term care spending, uh, either for a loved one or for ourselves, as soon as we can.
1: Shifting our conversation a little bit now to mental health and well-being for the Alzheimer's population, what are some special considerations for that group of individuals? What do we need to be thinking about related to mental health as we continue to improve treatment?
2: Well, I think what's important is people living with dementia can still report, can still indicate mental health distress. And um, instead of the belief, and I would argue it's somewhat of an ageist belief that, well, this is just a normal part of dementia, you know, feelings of depression, uh, impairments in mood, et cetera. I think when we approach mental health and someone living with dementia, we have to, number one, understand that it can be measured, can be observed, and should be tracked, And then number two, to identify programming services care that is Oriented around the personhood of the person living with dementia, uh, knowing who they are as a person, understanding what their preferences are or were, and then organizing our care and services around that. I mean, many people have used the term person centered care when organizing this philosophy of assistance for people living with dementia. The term has been almost overused to the point that I don't know if many people can actually identify when person centered care is occurring. But that being said, is understanding and validating the preferences and values and voice of a person living with dementia, first and foremost, I think is key to then designing and creating and delivering services that can improve the overall quality of life and by extension, the mental well-being of someone living with dementia.
1: And my last question for you, um, kind of ending on a positive note, um, looking towards the future, are there any promising innovations in the treatment and care for dementia and Alzheimer's?
2: I mean, I I think there might be, whether it's pharmacological or not is up for debate. I I think many people know, um, and I know the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group will be having an event, if they haven't already had it, uh, focused on uh, the, the FDA approval of the new drug Adjuhelm, which was done under fairly controversial circumstances and in the end probably will not be widely available, nor some have argued is even that efficacious. But that being said, that might auger the development of future drugs that, again, are targeting amyloid plaque. Uh, accumulation in ways that might actually show clinical benefit. Um, so there might be some promise on the pharmacological front. I think in the non-pharmacological front there has been greater understanding of how lifestyle behaviors, uh, you know broadly speaking, social well-being, diet, exercise throughout the life course can actually potentially prevent dementia. In 2021 in the summer, The Lancet uh, published a very important article from an international commission that synthesized all of the available literature. And basically, this commission uh, concluded that roughly 30, 35% of lifetime dementia risk is preventable. And there are studies that have occurred both in, in uh, the Netherlands specifically. It was called the FINGER study. FINGER is an acronym. And now there is a study that's replicating FINGER in the US called POINTER that is specifically looking at how uh, multi component lifestyle intervention strategy focusing on social well being, uh, cognitive engagement, and then, of course, diet and, you know, moderate exercise all together can contribute to reducing dementia risk. And I think when we consider the landscape of future science and dementia, I believe that the lifestyle path will be one that will probably show evidence that perhaps might change how we approach brain health throughout our life course, so...
1: Absolutely. It sounds like that multifactorial approach holds a great deal of promise. Um, taking a look at that pathway is definitely important. And those are all of the questions that I have for you, Dr. Goggler. Thank you so much for our conversation today. This has been wonderful.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: This podcast is brought to you by ASIC the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.